Well, good morning. Great to see you and uh, glad you're here. If you're a first-time guest, we wanted to say again a special welcome to you and uh, really glad uh, that you're visiting uh, with us this morning. We started a new series last week uh, titled Love Thy Neighbor. Uh, Jesus uh, summed up the commands of God in this way. The law of God could be summed up with love God and love neighbor. Uh, and so we're beginning our third year as a church, and we thought it would be good to realign ourselves to the, to the mission of what God has called us to as his people in this city of Durham. And so we are preaching a series on what it looks like to love our neighbor. And you heard from Kathy about hospitality. Each week we're going to be looking at different avenues that God uh, provides for us to love neighbor. But before I read our passage and we get into the text this morning, I want to ask you a question. How would you fill in the blank to this sentence right here? How would you fill in the blank? The Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of Man, came blank. The Son of Man came blank. Perhaps you would say the Son of Man came preaching the Word of God. Maybe the Son of Man came to establish the kingdom of God. There are three ways the New Testament completes this sentence. Three ways. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came, secondly, to give his life as a ransom. And then lastly, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, the first two statements are statements about why Jesus came. He came to serve. He came to ransom. But that last statement is how Jesus came. Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus ate and drank so much that the religious people of his day, the Pharisees, said in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, look at him. Look at Jesus. That man is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus ate and drank a lot, so much so that his enemies accused him of doing it in excess. Jesus loved a good dinner party. He loved a party. He loved having them. He loved throwing them. He loved being invited to them. The Gospel of Luke is full of stories of Jesus eating and drinking with people. Robert Karras writes this, that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. That is Luke's gospel. The Son of Man, he came to serve, he came to ransom, he came to establish his kingdom, but Luke's gospel is pretty clear that the mission strategy of Jesus was let's eat a long meal together. A meal that stretches long into the evening and around this table that we sit at together, we'll have conversations. Conversations about Jesus. Evangelism will happen. Discipleship will happen. Around a table filled with fish that's been freshly grilled, a loaf of bread and a pitcher of wine. Jesus invited people to table with him. Now, you know, too, that the church of the Lord Jesus historically has been known to be a people of welcome and a people who invite people into their home and to table together. You know that from the second century to the 16th century, if you were traveling in most parts of our world, North Africa, Italy, Scotland, wherever you were, you would travel with your eyes scanning the horizon, looking for rest in the midst of the travel, and what your eyes were scanning for was a church. Because at a church, there were monasteries, and monasteries was where they would welcome you in and provide shelter and warmth and protection and lodging and food. 
The church was known by everyone as a place that welcomed strangers into their home and to their table. Because they knew that any guests that they welcomed into their church, that they were welcoming Christ himself. Now the sad thing is, this is not the case for most people today. Most people do not look to the church as a way for them to get shelter, food, care, and what's even more sad is that we, the church, are not looking for them. I think we need to rediscover the mission strategy of Christ and the mission strategy of the ancient church, and that's to love our neighbor through hospitality. So this morning, we're gonna look at a passage in Luke, and we're gonna ask God, he make us a people of hospitality. So I'm gonna ask you to stand as I read Luke chapter 14, the passage that we're looking at this morning. Luke 14, I'm gonna read verse one, and then go into verses 12 to 24. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. They had their eye on Jesus. Verse 12, he said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I, got, and, I, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you speak to us this morning. Thank you that you welcome us. That you welcome us this morning. And that you speak to us. That you're present with us. So I pray that you would change us as a result of us being with you. Would you illumine our minds? Would you inflame our hearts? And would you change the way we live because we have encountered you this morning? We pray this thing, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So I want us to enter this parable. Again, that's the point of parables, for us to enter in to the parable. And I want us to enter in and and see the major players, the major actors within this parable. There really are three major actors. There's the host, there are the guests, and there's the servants. But before we get into the parable, I'm gonna try to set the scene in which Jesus tells this parable. That's why I started with verse one. Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee, the religious leader, elite of society. So imagine a modern house for this incredibly wealthy Pharisee. And it's a house grand enough for a dining room that would, that would hold a 14-foot table. And sitting at this table in this 
beautiful home were a bunch of Presbyterians, and some Baptists, some Episcopalians. It was a pleasant meal, but when you put a bunch of religious people together, probably was a little bit stiff. So Jesus, sitting at this table, Earlier in Luke uh, chapter 14, but what I did not read, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. He tells the parable of a wedding feast. What Jesus is doing at this Pharisee's house and this party is that he's being quite offensive. Uh, This already stiff, very religious crowd, Jesus is taking this tension to a whole new level and being incredibly offensive. Now, this is Jesus' strategy often if you read the scriptures. He offends the religious and he welcomes the broken. We're going to see more of that in this parable. Now, the church today, I think, too often does the reverse. We welcome the religious and we offend the broken. And I pray that we as a church would be way more like Jesus, offending the religious and welcoming the broken. So Jesus says to the Pharisee who invites him in verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. This is offensive because at this dinner party are the Pharisees and the Pharisees' friends. These are the certified religious elite, the elite of society. These are the winners of society. It's, it's the people who think they have the right ticket, that they deserve to be at this table Right, whether it be the religious ticket or any other ticket that they measure themselves by, they, they believe they deserve to be here. And, and Jesus instead says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then he tells this parable of a great banquet. And this is the first player I want us to look at. The first actor is the host. And the host in this parable is God. And the main thing that we see about God is the welcoming, gracious desire that his house be filled. The driving message of the parable is the heart of the host for his house to be filled. So we have to start here, church, that God yearns for people to come. God longs for people to come to his party and to dine at his table. You know, the Bible starts and ends with a great feast and a great party. The promised land of Israel was a land flowing with milk and honey. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, calls the promised land a land with rich food, aged wine. Jesus inaugurates his ministry in John chapter two by providing the best wine at a wedding in Cana. Our God has always been and always will be a God who throws the best party and welcomes all who will come. Our God longs for us all to come and to table with him. See, Jesus is turning the Pharisees' understanding of the world upside down. He's not simply giving social or ethical requirements for dinner parties. It's it's not just mere suggestions to invite those who will not repay you or to invite those who are unhealthy. What Jesus is doing, he's being offensive. He, He is speaking to a party full of people whose lives are driven by being first, by being found, by being big, by being important. Robert Capone was extremely helpful here in my interpretation of this. See, what Jesus is doing is he's attacking the very thing that is central to being first or big or important. And that 
is being a bookkeeper, measuring yourself against others, determining who's winning and who's losing. And if we're honest, we all bookkeep in many different ways. If you're a Christian or you're religious in some manner, we, we can have a spiritual book that we keep, right? Who, how good are we doing? Who, who's making impact, right, in, in the church? We can keep a social book, right? Who's liked, who's respected, right? We can keep a family book. Whose children are best behaved and advancing the most and above others? We keep a record of who's winning and who's losing. More to the point, if we are winning or losing. So the human race is, and that includes me and includes all of you, I believe is no doubt addicted to keeping records and remembering scores. We approach life and relationships and often God with asking, where am I on the scorecard? How do I measure up? And if we learn anything from Jesus as we read the Gospels, is that Jesus does not look at us and he does not measure us according to what we do or what we've done. Jesus has once and for all closed the bookkeeping department. Again, we're all addicted to keeping records. Even as we approach God, we can think that God's happy with us if we're doing doing good and we're being obedient. If we're doing those things, we're on the right side of the ledger. We think God welcomes us based on our doing and on our living. But God longs for all of us to know his welcoming heart. To know that Jesus came to save the world and he will not hold our records against us. Jesus paid it all. Canceling any debt, any record. And if God doesn't keep a record, why should we? We will never experience the party of God until we are free from living this way and thinking this way. You know, Monday and Tuesday were beautiful days outside. We're about to have a beautiful week, I think. And, and so I took our oldest son, Henry, uh, to the park, to Central Park downtown. And, and one of my greatest joys as a dad recently has been to watch Henry smile and laugh as he goes down a slide by himself. And so Monday, Henry was going down the, the big children's slide all by himself, and he was loving life, and he was laughing, and he was smiling, and, and I looked at him, and I thought, he's just free. He's free. Now, a few months ago, Henry would not have gone down a slide that steep by himself. He, he would have clutched very tightly to me or to his mom, and he would have, he would have held on tightly. Living life with a view of God that God is keeping our records that he's keeping a record of, of your right and your, and your wrong, what you do or you don't do, or what you could or couldn't do, is living life with a clutched hand. You will never experience the welcoming heart of God fully in the party he offers if you live life this way. We have to be a people that trust God's heart. A people that know that the only book that our God cares about is the book of eternal life, the Lamb's book of life. And if you trust Christ, you know the thing that's written in that eternal book? Do you know the thing that's written in in that book about you? Your name. John. Arthur. Sally. Lizzie. Nothing else is written but your name. None of your bad deeds because Christ has erased them. 
None of your good deeds because he didn't count them, but our God enjoyed them. So when we read about God in the last days, what we see is that when God will read this book, he will read just your name. And he will read it loud as a proud father and he will smile and he'll say, you're just the way I pictured you. And he'll wink at us and he'll say, come up here. Sit right down next to me and let's me and you have a good long practice laugh before this party gets so loud that we can't even hear how much fun we're having. We have to trust that this is the heart of God. And if we trust that, then we can, like my son, let go and enjoy life and be free. Let's look at the second major character, player in this parable. It's the guest. Not just the host, but the guest. Jesus says, don't invite friends, brothers, relatives, the rich. Now Jesus is using exaggeration here, like he does in other parts of scripture when he teaches. He's using a technique to drive a point home. Jesus is not saying you should never have friends or you should never have family or the rich over to your for a party. Jesus is saying if we're to invite people into God's party, the people that we invite are those who offer nothing. People on the outside, people on the margins, people who know they're broken, people who many of us might say are the losers if we're keeping records. See, the rich invite the rich to their parties. The people who are self-important invite those who they think are important. So we have to understand what the Pharisees were doing in their day is not much different than what we do. The Pharisees were using their party as a way to climb the social ladder or the religious ladder or the career ladder. They were hosting this party, inviting whoever they thought could help them get to where they wanted to be. And it's sad that this is still the way many churches operate. That the church community and the church can be a way of networking. I'm gonna go to church on Sunday because I I just might meet that person who can connect me to what I need. Church is way more than a, a community for networking. Jesus lists all the excuses that some of the guests give why they can't come to this party. Have to have land to tend to, I have, I have new animals, I have a, a new wife. All, not bad excuses, but all, again, are excuses showing that they are thinking primarily about themselves. The proud and the self-important will not accept God's invitation to the party. You know who does? Who does Jesus table with throughout Scripture? Who's Jesus with? The prostitute, the tax collector, those who are on the outside, the poor, the crippled, those who are broken is who the Lord Jesus tables with. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, writes of a prostitute in Chicago who's asked if she'd ever, if she'd ever thought about going to church for help. And she, she exclaims, church? Why would I ever go to church? I, w- I already feel terrible about myself. They'd make me feel worse. Let me say this. If we're not a church for the broken, we can close up shop right now, Christ Central. Seriously, if we're not a people of brokenness, offering other broken people an invitation to the feast, we can shut our doors. We're not being the church. And to be a church that welcomes the broken, 
We have to know our brokenness. We say this often. That's why we have a confession of faith, a confession of sin every week. We have to truly believe and know that we are the poor in spirit. Know that we offer nothing. We have to know that we are the crippled spiritually, powerless by sin. That we're spiritually blind, unable to see truth apart from God. That we're the spiritually lame, unable to come to God apart from his grace. We have to know that's who we are. Jesus ate with those on the outside, those who society looked down upon. And this was Jesus' way of identifying himself with them. This is a way for Jesus to say, these are my people. These are my people. Now, eating a meal today is very similar. It's a way to identify with someone, right? Eating a meal with someone affirms the other person. Think about it. At a table, when you eat a meal with someone at a table, everybody is equal. Everybody's equal at a, at a table. And I really believe this is where, if we want to see in our church a truly multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-class church, I believe that we have to learn how to table together, share together, where no one is superior to the other. And I think hospitality is a way for that to happen. Tim Chester wrote this, if you tell someone he's a sinner who needs God while you're handing him a cup of soup, then he will hear you say he's a loser who should become like you. But when you eat together, and you tell him what a messed up person you are, then you can tell him about sin and the grace of Christ. I'll tell you the times I've understood the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ the most is when I've been welcomed into the homes of Bill and Julie Bolt and Dick and Scotty Kane. My last two years of undergrad at Auburn University, Bill Bolt was my campus minister. I don't think I remember anything Bill Bolt ever taught at a weekly meeting. I really don't. When I lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama from 2002 to 2005, Dick Kane was my pastor. I don't think I remember more than two sermons from, that Dick preached. You know what I do remember? I remember Bill and Julie's marriage. I remember Dick and Scotty's parenting. I remember them both welcoming me into their families and into their homes and modeling before me a life that was messy, a life that was hard, but a life in which they lived trusting Christ. They were openly broken with me, welcoming me, a broken sinner, into their home, and it was there that I understood the grace and the love of God most deeply. These are the guests. This is how we are to host, and it's the guest we are to invite, those who are broken. Let's look at the last character in this parable. And this is mine, your role. This is where I really want to press in on us this morning. And it's the servants. Look with me at the parable. The servants come, they report to the master all the excuses of the invited guest, and then they tell the servant, the master tells the servant to go back out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city. Go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. We're the servants. We are the ones who are to summon our neighbors to the feast. We are to go and extend the invitation to all people. That's our role. If you remember or ever saw the movie Little Miss Sunshine, the movie's about a very dysfunctional family made up of apparent losers. Right? And the king of them all, the motivational speaking father, right, who speaks about being winners, and he speaks to like a crowd of five to ten people. And the daughter, Olive, decides she wants to be in a beauty pageant, in the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. 
There's a scene in the movie where the whole family, this dysfunctional family, is driving the minivan to the pageant. They make a stop, and Olive gets left at the gas station. And they're driving down the road. They're, they're kind of talking and arguing and yelling, and all of a sudden they realize that Olive's not with them. And the next scene, you have the minivan kind of backing up in reverse to the gas station, and the father yells, no one gets left behind. They pick her up, and they head to the pageant. I laugh because I think that's a great picture of the church. A group of broken people, dysfunctional people, if you will, who are committed to no one being left behind, who will go to the highways and to the hedges to extend the invitation to God's party. It's easy. It's easy to think that the church's role of building community and being on mission belongs to professional Christians. Right, belongs to those of us who get paid right, to be professional Christians. It belongs to all of you. And it belongs to me, but it belongs to all of you. Jesus didn't run projects. He didn't establish ministries. Jesus in the scriptures didn't create programs or put on events. You know what Jesus did? He ate meals with people. He ate meals. Hospitality is not that hard. It's not that complicated But as Kathy shared earlier, it's not always easy, but it's not complicated. We all can do it. Simon Carey Holt wrote this. I thought this was good about hospitality. He said, at base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in in its ordinariness is its real worth. See, hospitality is not always nice formal dinners. It's not always a clean house with a set table. Actually, I think that can oftentimes be more about making an impression on your guest than being hospitable, more about you than about your guest. Hospitality can be dirty dishes, crying babies. It can be a cup of coffee. Hospitality is opening your home to strangers and paying attention and listening and asking questions and then offering a place of peace and beauty and joy. Now, I know in our church community there are people who are probably deep down, and this is me at times, wishing we just need to do more, Christ Central. We need to do more. We need to do more in this city. And yes, we need to do more, and I want more, and I want God to move. But oftentimes what we mean when we say that is, I wish we offered more programs. I wish we did more projects. Let me tell you, if you want to do something, you want to do more, you can't do anything more powerful than turn to someone in your row that you don't know and invite them over to your house for a meal. Introduce yourself. There are people here in our midst that need to be welcomed much less the people you live next to or you work with or you play with. I believe if we as a church, if all we did, I really do believe this, if all we did as a church, sometimes I wish this is all we did, was worship on Sunday mornings and all of us practice true hospitality in the way I'm talking about, where we're inviting each other into our homes, we're inviting people we live next to, people we work with, people that we play with into our homes, and we're providing, as Holt said, environments. We're facilitating an environment for God to work through our listening, through our talking. I really believe we would make an incredible impact in the city of Durham. That's all we did. 
Now, I know all of us can have excuses. We can all have excuses for not offering hospitality. So let me preempt some of your excuses. The first, some of you say, well, it's scary. It's scary to be hospitable. What, 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 would, what will people think about my home? What will people think about my family? Will, will they judge me? Again, let me remind you how we started. If we understand the welcoming heart of God and his rejoicing over us in our brokenness, we won't feel the need to perform, to have all of our ducks in a row for people to enter our lives and our home. They can see us in our messiness, and in fact, it's in our messiness that Christ uses to draw people to himself. Some of you are saying, well, it's costly. Food costs money, I don't have money. Hospitality, it takes time, and I just don't have time. Things might get broken, right? Somebody might wear my hat and go out in my yard and rake leaves, right? You don't have to spend money, a ton of money to be hospitable. Invite people over for a cookie and for a, and for a cup of coffee. And if you're single and you think a family could never come over to your home because you don't have toys and the environment maybe isn't friendly, invite a family to go picnic. Go outside and play together. We can, we can still be hospitable to one another. And we have to remember that the, the banquet table of Christ that we celebrate every week and we look forward to when Christ returns was costly. Discipleship is costly. Following Christ is costly, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. And here's the last excuse. This is very prevalent at Christ Central. We're too busy. Too busy. Got so much going on in my life right now and my job and my family. And, and I do know, take my cynicism here with a grain of salt, I do know there are seasons of busyness. Uh, I'm in one. I have a seven-week-old son, and there are seasons of busyness. But I think that it, what that means in our busyness and the culture of, uh, that can often be, we just have to be more intentional. We have to be more intentional. We have to plan. We have to think about it. So, so let's think about it. Seven days a week, most of us eat three meals a day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, most of us. That's 21 meals that you're eating and that we're eating in a week. That is 21 opportunities to table with someone, to welcome someone without adding anything to your schedule. We don't have to add anything. We all are already doing it. We just have to think a little bit more intentionally about how we do it. And let me say to myself and to those of you who claim this last excuse that you're too busy, I really think it's, it's on us to figure out why we're so busy and why we excuse ourselves for not being hospitable people. And what needs to change? What do we need to say no to in order for that to happen? Because I would make a very educated guess in a, in a crowd this size, I would say 90% of you here this morning who consider yourself a Christian came to believe Christ through a relationship. I bet if I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you came to know Christ either through a family member or through a friend of some sort, at least 90% of you would raise a hand. You see, the majority of people are not argued into the kingdom of God. And as much as I would like it, most people are not even preached into the kingdom of God. Most people are loved into the kingdom of God. We don't need more programs. We don't need more things to do. We need to love our neighbor by practicing hospitality, leaving no one behind and extending this invitation to love those who 
may not always be able to reciprocate. And there are so many, let me just be practical, there are so many opportunities for us to be hospitable and so many opportunities for us to throw parties. Let me just throw out just some personal occasions. You had a birthday, an anniversary, you got a new job, you're finishing exams, you just got a new house. Those are all reasons, let's throw a party, let's have fun. Sporting occasions, Duke Carolina's playing, football's on, baseball, right? Cultural occasions, the Chinese New Year. Let's go celebrate and, 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 and learn about a new culture. Seasonal occasions, spring's coming, gonna be warm outside, let's grill, let's have people over. We have plenty of reasons to throw parties. Plenty of reasons to invite people in. And if we're broken, and we can confess the messiness of our lives, that we don't always have it together, and we invite people in, they're gonna see that, and they're not gonna see us and our performance and, and what we've done or what we've not done. They're gonna see Jesus, and they're gonna be drawn to Christ. I really, when we planted this church, we started thinking about this church six years ago, I guess, five years ago. Timothy and I were like, God, I wish Christ Central, I hope and I pray that Christ Central's known for being a fun church. People, what's Christ Central? But they're fun. They, ha- they can throw parties and they have fun with the best of them. Because this is how the Bible ends, people. You know, the, the Bible ends with a feast, with a party. For eternity, we are going to have fun. And we're going to eat good food and we're going to drink a good drink and we're going to celebrate and we're going to laugh. And all of us who are poor and broken will be invited and we will be drawn to Christ. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be a party that nobody wants to miss. So let's extend the invitation as we know the heart of our God, longing for us and for all to come and to feast with him. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to know your welcoming, gracious heart and then help us to be a welcoming gracious people in jesus name amen